Yeah, man. Remember in John Wick when they have him tied to a chair with a bag over his head? Everybody keeps asking. Well, the bag's not on his head yet. Everybody keeps asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. And I read this review that this lady said, you know what? For all those motherfuckers that say Keanu Reeves can't act, if you watch that scene, what he does with his vocals, this hidden rage that he's slowly letting come to the surface, that's oh, yeah. legit shit acting. Oh, yeah. So, so fuck you, Keanu. Haters. Yeah. That's so yeah. many shows. I don't yeah, know. We, who we take down so many ghosts. I don't know. I don't know when I said it. Don't cross the streams, Ray. <laughs> oh, man. I've laughed that hard since I was seven years old and my doctor told me that I had a penis. Oh, man. I you crushed me with that title. What the fuck? I just... Uh, I didn't expect it. It's, it's fine. I didn't expect it when I sat on the toilet and then I felt hot water all of a sudden. That was weird. Wow. That's a weird story. You should get that toilet checked out. <laughs> Welcome, Podience. Welcome to another coveted Chemohawk Podience session spectacularly orally satisfying spectacle with a voice you will find eerily familiar and strikingly similar to one you've heard a multitude of fucking times on White Collar Black Belt, on Whiskey Wednesdays with Wham Bam Cam. He has been a guest on the Basement Party under the alias Bruce Sodiker. He also has generated his own educational broadcast, Audible Ally courtesy of wham bam uncle fucking camp this man is involved in more acronyms than a viral infection or a military fucking operation i welcome today the son of bruce wayne bruce f stars blood vein cool as ice sneaky as mice and twice as nice my bloodless brother from a different sucker my adjacent partner in white collar crime my voice of reason when speaking dysfunctional workplace treason my guiding light on a wicked, warped, dark pathway at night. When the clock strikes midnight and my rage from the white collar can still ignite. Together, we'll say we aren't gay, but we're already late for the fray. And he has FOMO, the homo. And I enable his street earned label of being a big swinging check who will wreck you if you steal his stew. Fuck Goldilocks, but revere right here. The man who lends, but never borrows who gets brass knuckle beaten and bends, still shows up tomorrow. The man who never gives in. Wham, bam, brother-sucking Cam. Uh, rumor, tamer, disclaimer, audience, both wham, bam, cam, and falsetto are straight as a fucking metric ruler, but the term gay rhymes with a myriad of words, and therefore was used for poetic effect. Welcome, my non-homo Call of Duty headshot in slow-mo bro. Welcome, wham, bam, cam. Thank you, thank you. Damn, what an intro that was. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is always to make the guests just not know what the fuck to say, do, or think. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you're thinking like, okay, are these complimentary? Like, I don't even know. It's it's lost. It's lost. I took it as compliments. Good. I took it as compliments. I like to begin these these things with quotes, but really for purposes of this particular episode, I think it's all in the title. Welcome to Chapter 49, White Collar Black Belt, a PhD in mental deficiency. Efficiency, a trisyllabic F-stars word. Chemohawk audience sessions with Wayne Van Camp. Well, man, I know it's been a long time. I'm glad that you are back on this White Collar Black Belt extravaganza. Yeah, man. I, I was actually just thinking about it. I was telling the wife before we, uh, this week, as I was prepping this episode with you, actually for, for White Collar Black Belt, been like over 20 episodes since i've been on 
we've obviously worked on other projects and, and things like that. But when it comes to white collar survival, it's good to be back here. It's good to be able to, our topic today is going to help the audience very well, I think. Yes. And I know that some people get more out of guest sessions. Some people like singular sessions, but the way I see it, if you have a confluence of good ideas, two people coming together, that is the very cornerstone of democracy is you have two people talking things out, arguing, negotiating, and arriving at what is probably the closest thing resembling the truth. Mm-hmm. So I like the discussions and the dialogue. So I have a couple quotes just too, because I don't want to spend too much time on the bullshit. All my means are sane. My motive and my object, mad. Herman Melville, Moby Dick. I always thought that was funny in the movie Wedding Crashers, when Christopher Walken is talking about his weird son, and he's talking about, oh yeah, that guy was so fucked up, he thought Moby Dick was a venereal disease. (laughs) (laughs) I think about that quote because, so we know that Captain Ahab was a great whale hunter. He was very accomplished, but he was obsessed, and that was no good. And I think about that being a metaphor for a company where maybe your leadership or whether it's a a one person manager top down or it's like a whole institution of leadership. But either way, they may be brilliant or they may be very experienced. They may have managed a troop of military combatants. They may have managed a, a Dairy Queen franchise. It doesn't matter. But if at their core, they're delusional or if they're short sighted or if they're obsessive, that's bad for growth. That's bad for efficiency. That's bad for the company's abilities and reputation. You may be very accomplished, but you also have to remain temperate, I think. That's why I dropped that bad boy. The second quote is, the only way to efficiently battle evil is to copy enough to know how to counter each argument, yet not enough to believe all the bullshit. Will advise. And I think that's just great. You don't want to you know, put too much into a concept, because even if the concept sounds nice, kind of like the gingerbread house looks tasty, but if you step inside, you may be in a world of fucking hurt. All right. So, what I like about you, man, is I know that you really like quotes, and I know that you'll be reading a book or a passage or be listening to a podcast, and you'll really isolate the things that you consider to be memorable. So I appreciate that aspect of your the way your intellect works. Now give us some of that intellect. Oh, <laughs> I've got a quote that will probably come up at some point in this. We'll, we'll refer back to it a few times. Any military or army trainees uh, or anybody who's been in the military a long time will, will recognize this one. It's it's very simple. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. And we can get into what that means here after a while, because um, I know what some of our topics are going to be. I want everybody to kind of think about that one for a while, because this one's this one's going to be probably the heart of what I'm going to discuss a lot today. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. It sounds kind of sexual in nature. Can be. Depends <laughs> uh, on what oh, night of the week it is. I like that product placement, baby. Woo! Right now, Wham Bam Cam <laughs> is drinking a Chemo Walk Session soft drink. It's called it's called chemo hog bubbles. When you're when you're hawking your bubbles are in your same body. And the crazy no, part uh, is that there's no fizz. <laughs> it's flat like my jokes. Now, oh, um, when you think of a redhead, what is that one image that just comes to mind, knee jerk without thinking about it? It's like probably like poison ivy or something. It's really simple. Just well, grab it. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well. <laughs> you good? I, you all right? Yeah, oh, I'm I'm, well, I'm thinking about Jessica Rabbit right now. When I ask about efficiency, what image comes to mind? It can be from anything, but what is the first place you go in your mind when you think of efficiency? For me, it's just being able to do a task as cleanly and quickly as possible. Right. So John Wick style. Yeah. Like quickly I cleanly. want two in the chest, one in the head done. Move on to the next done. target. Mozambique technique, also known as the failure drill. Yeah. 
Yeah. We've talked about the scene before, but probably one of the most efficient scenes in John Wick showing what he's capable of is the tunnel scene in John Wick 2. He has all the preparation. There's weapons lined up throughout the deal. Like he knew his point of retreat. He knew what he was going to have to do in certain situations. He was wearing the gear he needed for that time. And every kill was as clean and efficient as possible. It was just ridiculous. Like the prep time that went into that is why it paid off. Right. I know that it's a point of contention, but I think John Wick 2 remains my favorite film. Yeah. Even though it's hard to pick a favorite. And I think it's mostly because of the fact that, and I'm going to draw this all back to work. On its face, you're thinking, okay, he spent 30 minutes in the movie. Because after that initial opening sequence where he's getting his machina from that garage from, you know, yep. the guy who's Lucifer and Constantine. He was, dude, his facial expressions, Peter Stormare's oh. facial expressions where he's just, dude. he's looking up at the ceiling like it's like raining. Such a oh, good actor, oh, man. oh, fuck. You know, and then after the house explosion, there's no action for like 30 minutes. To the untrained audience member, you're thinking, oh, fuck this. I thought this was going to be John Wick, not John plays with his dick. I don't know. But you're, you're seeing these 30 minutes of prep and you're thinking, well, what is the point? You know, like, I don't care about this. But then the payoff is oh, yeah. so satisfying. Oh, yeah. That it, it was all worth it. And so I apply that to work to say, you may think, well, it would have been much more efficient if instead of dick around Rome, he just went up to the girl and shot her. Yeah. But then it's like, but what about the exit strategy? You know, how do you get away after you complete this task? Because you want the money. You want to be able to live like a king afterwards. So to me, if it were, you are just doing the easiest thing and you're like, oh, it's efficient. But that's like short-sighted efficiency. Sometimes to be really efficient, you actually have to labor and you have to do things that on their face may not make sense. But if the Absolutely. payoff is satisfying enough, when you started your new project at the Habitual Offender and you had to take over an entire department, it was probably inefficient or borderline inefficient or somewhere in that spectrum for a long time before you were actually able to get it to that place where you could start getting dividends on your returns for the, for the pr productivity and the efficiency components. Probably had to go through hell to get to something resembling heaven from an efficiency perspective, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Man, when that department started, there weren't very many of them at the time. We had, we had adapted the process, that department from Houston of all places. So you know how that is. As we were trying to adapt it, that company kind of caters to the cities and the regions that they live in. So no two locations are identical, but we had to standardize these processes with a new department. And so you have all these managers, all these teams, me being one of them, trying different things at different locations. And we're having to meet or we're getting on a team's call or, or, or something like that. And and he, here's what we tried this week. And here's what the data kickback said. It's it's better or it's worse. Okay, well, let's try this little tweak here or or anything like that. And some painstaking conversations. We discussed meetings many, many times in, in white collar, black belt. For me, those are probably some of the most productive meetings I was ever in because you're actually working on a problem. It took a long time. And I would say, God, for the last two years of my time there, it probably took that long because you have to operate the business at the same time. You can't just, well, we're going to shut down until we get this right. No, you still got to operate and make money. Right. It probably took about two years to start to make it efficient, painstakingly so. And I assume that you were pouring a lot of yourself into it, even probably more so than they were paying you for, just like emotionally and mentally and all that. Oh, absolutely. I, you'll recall back to that time because you, you were still living in Texas at the time, man. You, those two years, you, I think we barely even saw each other. I was spending a lot of time there, 60, 70, 80 hours a week sometimes, 12 to 16 hour days, come home, sleep, wake up, do it again. A lot of time into that. I even said this on Lesson 3 in Audible Ally how and when to jump ship. I briefly mentioned how many hours and stuff I was putting into it. I think a lot of that 
brought in some of that mental degradation that caused me to probably say what I said, which launched everything, right? Like I was putting so much into it that my emotions were allowed to kind of take over. It's a balance. Could it have been more efficient if I had taken more time for myself? We'll never know. Since you were kind enough to share all of that in the interest of full transparency, attention, buzz, saw, word, trans, fucking parency. You may not have seen much of me, but I can't tell you how many days on my way home from work, I would be in that parking lot with my binoculars just staring at you. Okay. I appreciate that. I was seeing lots of you. I was seeing lots of you. You were watching out for me, right? You weren't being creepy at all. I kept kept thinking to myself, he's getting a really good calf workout. He needs to buy a thong that's comfortable because he keeps pulling at his butt crack. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, those chinos were were climbing up where they shouldn't have. (laughs) Those chinos will get you every time. (laughs) Much like the lore of the poor for you Whiskey Wednesday fans, and there's a lot of you, it's like Cassiel said in Supernatural, you Whiskey Wednesday fans are legion. Right. I briefly stroked this segment called Tale of the Title, where I just briefly explain why the fuck I'm using the title. Some people think those people that are highly educated, like, oh, I've got a PhD. Okay, go fuck yourself, because... You may have a PhD, but we don't know why you got it. You could have a rich uncle. You could have, you know, slept your way through school. You could have just been doing a lot of coke, stay up at night to study. Saying you have a PhD, all that tells me is that your parents probably had fucking money. Okay. That's all that tells me. To be fair, it also could be someone who took their work seriously and they really wanted to better themselves. But I call it a PhD in mental deficiency because sometimes, and this is mostly for management, but it's also for people that drink the Kool-Aid too quickly on these quote unquote efficiency projects. It's like giving too much credit just because someone has a rank or a title or because they say, well, I managed a chain of Dairy Queens. Okay, fine. But we're going to watch. What's with all the hatred on Dairy Queen? I love Dairy Queen. The fucking blizzards. Started down that path today. I don't know why. I want a Butterfinger Heath Bar Crunch M&M mixture right now in my mouth. Oh, I know. Could you even fucking eat it? I don't think so. Probably break every tooth in your mouth. Not without an EpiPen first. You know, you want to understand that, yes, someone has some experience or they have some knowledge or they've done some training courses. We got so at your work, I know you have your own thing, but we had like designations where we had insurance designations and someone just couldn't wait to put their designations by their name and their signature of their email. Okay, but what did you really learn? Because I know damn well, since I have designations too, that you can just pick the wrong answer and it'll keep letting you start over until you get the right answer on those multi-choice, multiple point choices. By the way, dude, I hated those fucking exams where not only would you get four multiple choice options, you get six and five was none of the above. And six was all of the above. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I know. I know. Um, it's like, God, it's like, you're hurting my, my percentages. Like, I, I know, what if I, I click both? <laughs> <laughs> Shit, they probably make you president of that department. But then, so we get to the word efficiency itself, which conveniently rhymes with efficiency, but it's a trisyllabic word, man. It is not an efficient word. Efficient. No. It's three syllables. It's like, why don't they just call it lean? Lean. L-E-A-N or L-E-E-N. I don't give a shit. Make it one syllable. Calling something that is meant to be lean quick, lightning efficient. It's a trisyllabic word, makes as much sense and is uh, ironical as misspelling the fucking word mistake. It doesn't make any sense. I came up with, there's efficient, effective, effectual, and efficacious. Now, the definition, of course, is achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort or expense. Now, wham bam, you have a plethora of knowledge in this realm, but is it not true that people love to associate efficiency with productivity? But there is often a big difference between productivity and efficiency as far as how they apply, depending on what your streamlined work product is. Because I'm finding a shit ton of articles that say, don't be so quick to just throw them in the exact same category all the time, because sometimes they mean different things. Absolutely. And this is where we'll order between 
what standard efficiency is. You know, you mentioned why why don't we just call it efficiency lean? Well, I'll tell you at Umbrella, we do call it lean. We'll say, hey, well, that's not a very lean process. Oh, right. Because, look at that. because it does mean something different. Yes, you can have a process be efficient. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's at its leanest. So efficiency doesn't mean that it's going to be quick or that it's going to happen super fast. It just means that you're going to put out a constant quality product every single time. Lean means you're going to put out a constant quality product every single time, and you can do it fast. That's the difference. So quality efficiency is what you provide, and then leaning it out is how quickly you can put it together. When you combine those two, that is Lean Six Sigma, putting that together. So efficiency and lean, actually two separate things individually. You have to be able to add speed to efficiency in order to to make it something different. Well, and that's good. I like that because, so I obviously like to talk about buzzsaw words, but I think some people take the word efficient for granted mm-hmm. because what you've just spelled out is you could have a manager with a PhD in mental deficiency and they're saying things like, okay, we need you to be more efficient. We need you to multitask. Well, I'm going to stop you right there, motherfucker, because we've already learned that multitasking is inefficient, generally uh-huh. speaking. Now, if you're one of, you know, Hitler soldiers and you're doing the cocaine cocktail or whatever, you can probably do, you can probably wear a lot of hats, but yeah. We know that when you're investing your time, we know that the human body is very powerful and capable, but it has its, it has some weaknesses. Like it requires sleep. It requires nutrition and things like this to function properly. If you are investing your energy or your attention into multiple, and people are already struggling with attentional issues. We know that's a, a big plague. Oh, yeah. So you're going to give people that already struggle with like anxiety and the ability to focus on one task at a time. You're going to give them multiple tasks and expect them to perform exceptionally in each, in each realm. And to me, that's not good. And it's not sustainable. I know you like the word sustainable because you probably use that a lot at work. This is not in a sustainable operation or endeavor or what have you. But I just think that you can't say those words like lightly. Like you have to sit down. You could do an hour training on just, okay, this is what we mean by efficient. Okay, this is what we're well, yeah. And they don't take the time to do that. Just casually toss these terms around. And I don't think that's efficient in the long term. You may be efficient that day when you said, I'm going to need the SOP on the QRT on the F on the, on the quick. And the next day, you get a response from that person that says, yeah, I didn't do any of that because I don't know what the fuck any of that meant. And now you got to backtrack, you got to do double work, and you got to do this training that you should have done from the first. It's like more work up front, but it's smooth sailing on the back end, right? Okay, so for you, I don't think you can separate between the efficiency that you see at work and out in the real world, right? So how many times have you been somewhere and you're off the clock, you're off the fucking clock, and you see something and you say, that's not how they should be doing that. Nope. How many times do you not do it would probably be a, an easier response, right? That's a much shorter answer. None. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's good, though. I that's good. can't switch it off. You know, I've been doing this for many, many years at this point. And disclaimer to the audience at this point, there's going to be a lot of buzzsaw terms you're going to hear from me today. And that's, that's just what it is when we talk about, I want to kick it back to the whole PhD thing. Like people can spend a lot of money on a degree uh, and, and, and have a title or put it in their email. I actually never thought of doing this until then. Uh, but I'm actually a green belt certified Lean Six Sigma operator. What that means, I, I had to do work to get that. There wasn't like I paid a bunch of money and I took a test and got it. I'm, yes, there's certifications and things that do that. I did this through my job where I had to put in eight, 10 months worth of work, back it up with data, back it up with true process improvement ideals and implementations that are still current now that earned me the certificate. That being said, I can't turn it off now. <laughs> it's like constantly in my head all the time. 
something as simple as bringing in a delivery of groceries, right? Because I'm a slacker in the real world. I don't go to the store. I'll order my groceries online and have them delivered. My wife and I will bring in the groceries, but I'll look in the bag as I'm carrying it. And I'll be like, oh, hey, this is pantry goods. Let me put this bag by the pantry. That way, when I go to unload, it's right there. That's me in my head as I'm doing the process already, like making it as efficient and quick as possible. My wife will just put them all on the same counter. Okay, well, now I'm double touching the bags. I've now added a step in the process, right? And in my head, it angers me because I'm like, oh, it's a whole extra step. I'm wasting time. And and you've cross-contaminated the bleach with the French fries. Wait, you don't do that? Well, they're definitely <laughs> clean and lean. They're, they're clean and lean, baby. Um, <laughs> and it'll clean you out. Oh, yes, sir. Um, Drano, baby. <laughs> that's just a daily example of things that I see in my life that I'm just like, how can I do this? The wife and I, were we were talking about there's something cool that she wants to do with my social medias for, for Audible Ally. And I was like, well, why do we have to do it? I completely missed her point. I immediately went to, well, why do I have to do it this way? If I backed it up and I did it here at this point, then we could you know, disseminate it this way and it'd be much cleaner and much faster. She's like, hold on, man. <laughs> Back it up. <laughs> it's, it's, the curse, it's the curse of being a sympathetic male where historically speaking, and this, this isn't me saying this, this is from things that I've gathered in observation, but woman approaches man with issue. Woman wants shoulder to cry on. Man offers no shoulder, but says, oh, let's do this. Solution presents itself. They don't want the solution in that moment. They want you to listen to them, and that's it. And it's funny because it's the simplest thing in the world to do. All you have to do is sit down, shut the fuck up, and listen. But men struggle with this because men like to feel like, one, they're being heard, and they like to offer advice and help and fix a problem. Let's double-click into that real quick. Click, click. So, <laughs> click, click. <laughs> so my wife and I, I forget where we heard it, some motivational speaker or something like that but actually it was probably jordan peterson now that i'm thinking about it oh um, he spent a lot of time talking about the dude. differences between sexes but he's a clinical psychologist that's his yes whole, that's his whole yes thing. and so studies. jordan and it may not have been him but he probably said something similar to this but when either of us approach the other one with a problem because let's be real sometimes i can approach her and i don't want a solution i just need a vent as well it's asexual it's an asexual what, thing what me and her are trying to do now is they're done saying whatever they need to do whatever steam they're blowing off the first question we will ask is, do you want sympathy? Do you want me to sympathize with you? Or do you want a solution? Because I can go both ways right now. You just tell me. And if she says sympathize, then I'm like, cool. No, F that Karen or whoever pissed you off at your job or whatever. Like, screw them. And I, and I immediately full send into on her side and, man, this really sucks. But if she says solution, then I can kick in that other part of my brain and goes, okay, cool. Well, let's go back to this step. And then we can kind of work through the problem, right? I think by integrating that, we've done this for man, probably the better part of this year. I think that's helped us in our communication. It's made it efficient. See, I still do the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing from Last Action Hero. Oh, no. Where I put in a cassette tape <laughs> on the phone and, and the girl's like, and then you said, and then I, yes, yes, dear. Oh, uh-huh. Yep, yes, uh -huh. yes, dear. That's it. Uh -huh. That's it. Fuck. Communicative intimacy and just anticipating the spouse's need. It's a whole fucking thing. I like numbers. Not, not as much as you do, Mr. Spreadsheet Man. Shit, I, I can only imagine. Your, your bed sheets are probably just one big spreadsheet. Yeah, it's just an, it's just a really large printed out Excel file. <laughs> you just wrap, you, you use it to wrap your wounds <laughs> from all your shoot, shoot em ups. So I'm looking at these words, these efficient synonyms, and I, I wrote down the efficient synonym and I wrote down how many syllables that was, you know, attached to it. Boy. Oh, this is, I'll go, it was real fast to be efficient. Methodical, four. Systematic, four. Logical, three. Coherent, three. Well regulated, five. Orderly, three. Systematized, four. Streamlined, two. Ho ho! Finally, we get somewhere with streamlined. Productive three, effective three. Okay, none of those words are fucking efficient. Are you fucking kidding me? You are on the yes. right track with lean. Stay the course, my friend. Oh, yeah. 
Now, I'll give you an example. I had previously thought this up because I saw it about a week ago and I had to talk about it, but Chick-fil-A. Every motherfucker loves Chick-fil-A. If you don't love Chick-fil-A, well, shame on you. You're missing out. But Chick-fil-A is a great place and they've proven to be very successful. Efficiency is only good when it works, right? Like you may have this great efficient idea, but if it's not implemented properly, it's inefficient. And to make it worse, you probably are costing the company additional money because you probably spent a lot of money to get that operation up and, up and running. So you notice that Chick-fil-A may have been one of the first, if not the first, fast food oriented franchises that walks out to your car, cars in advance, so that your order is placed and so that you can get your food. Now, one potential challenge with this is, well, will the food that you get be hot? So you know that they had to work that all out so that you're getting your food quickly and you're getting your food and it's a quality product, that it doesn't cool off. Because if you've had cold waffle fries or lukewarm mm. waffle fries as mm. opposed to scald and hot, it's a world of fucking difference. Mm. But so it's an efficient idea. Now you need more labor and that labor needs to be those young whippersnappers that don't mind standing out there in 19 degree weather for hours at a time holding a fucking clipboard. But these people at Chick-fil-A crafted a very efficient, in theory, idea. But guess what happened, bro? It's not always efficient. They would jot down something of a vehicle description, but at night, if it's gray sedan, that's not very helpful. So now what happens is they were walking to our car, which is a gray sedan, and they were saying, what's your name? So you have to roll down your window. You're cold. Your butt's warm because the seat warm is, but you're cold. Your face is cold. Your hands are cold. And they're like, what's your name? So you tell them your name. They're like, okay. And then they walk away. It's like, well, what's your name, motherfucker? Get back here. Take a guess. How many times do they ask us either? What's your name? Are you still waiting for an order? What's your order? How many times do you think we were asked before we actually got our food? Take a guess. From the moment you drove up to the moment you drive away or like grab yep. food? Yep. Six. That's about right. I'm looking at Red Devil and I say, what information are they operating on? Did they just write down? So should we look at the receipt? And it's like gray sedan. How many fucking gray sedans are on this line right now? If that's yeah. their only identifying characteristic is a gray sedan, they need to make this better. So then I thought, you know what I would do? And she's like, tell me what you would do. I live and die by your every fucking word. And I said, that is not what she said, I but I said, okay. damn right. Well, for efficiency purposes, that's what she said. Okay. And so, so it's storytelling. It's lean storytelling. God damn it. But I'm sitting there and I say, you know what I would do? I would write down the color of the car, like the make of the car and the first three of the license plate, you know, TRB or CHF, if it's Chick-fil-A or CFK, whatever, fried chicken. The more information you have, yes, it's more data that you get on the onset and it's more for the computer to process and all that, but you get the best information immediately. And then you can take it right to the car. You don't have to ask them a single fucking question other than, was this truly your pleasure or was it my pleasure, sir or ma'am? If they give you like three characters of the the license plate, the odds of there being two cars in the line that are both a gray sedan with TAD, T-A-D at the front. And I don't know exactly how the system is set up, but I'm just saying that from a person who's just sitting there in the line, repeatedly having Mm -hmm. to roll down our window, repeatedly having to ask, and this applied in insurance. So we would get these complaints from customers because they would call in their claim or they'd call their agents, call in their claim. And they would have to tell the same fucking story like three times. Well, what do we know? Like sexual assaults, right? It's a real problem. Well, one of the reasons it's a problem is not only because you got all these pedophiles out there and these sick fucks. Pedophile was because there was a creepy guy came in Starbucks when I was working there and he had these Foster Grant sunglasses and he wore these really tight jeans and he was really weird. And his name was Phil. And one day I said, no, his name's not Phil. It's pedophile. I realized that these people are having issues with these reports of sexual assaults because they don't want to have to rehash and retell the same horrific story six times under six different circumstances with six different audience members. It's too traumatizing. Plus, you know, what happens is you tell the story six times, maybe some of your details change slightly, and then you're accused of being deceptive. Kind of like that test that they give some employees working like government jobs and some other jobs where they're trying to be indicative of deception. So they'll ask you the same question in five different ways. But you don't want to answer the same question because that's inefficient. 
So I think Chick-fil-A could have remedied that very easily by just giving the person who's delivering the food to the car a little bit more data up front. First off, I'm going to I'm going to say you don't need to understand every single bit about their business or their process to understand how to make it better. You don't. Uh, you just have to know what the end result is. So keeping that in mind, we're going to do an activity right now together. Think about you in that moment. You saw what process they were using. You recognized that, man, this is kind of wasteful. Oh, we said that we said that waste word. So I want you to think right now, what made you think of why that would be a better process? What was the goal of saying, hey, this is why I think if they did the license plates or the first three of the order, this would be a lot quicker and more efficient? What made you think of that? Why? If the goal of any business is to provide the top quality product and the most efficient delivery system available, if they're not achieving both of those, then they're not as good as they could be. They could be better. And, and that's for the experience of who? It would benefit every member of the organization. I mean, from the top down, everyone would be better off. But they're trying to do this clean process for who? They would get better online reviews. So the consumer? So for the consumer, the customer, right? Every bit of lean work, every bit of efficient work has to start with the customer and then work backwards. You came to that conclusion. I could think of it that way. You came to that conclusion because you're like, this was inefficient for me. I'm their customer sitting in this line right now. And they've come to me six different times. I've had to roll my window six different times. I just got the car warmed back up. Now I've got to roll it back down. Tell them again. At this point, you're agitated. What if your food was ice cold by the time you got it? The experience is now completely ruined, no matter how many times they came up to talk to you or create a touch point. So you came up with this better process in your head, reduces the touch points, reduces waste, and then you get your product in a timely manner. Waste is, you defined this beautifully in your efficiency episode, it's non-value added. If a customer's not going to pay for the step in the process, they don't care. They don't want it. Because I remember hearing at a company where they said, if you really care about your customers, then you would spend a lot of time making sure that the bathrooms are immaculate. Because the bathroom is a place that you don't get any money. I guess that's like a condom machine or some shit, but I don't see those in a lot of grocery stores. But the point is, is that if you keep your bathrooms clean, the message that that conveys to the customer is, you know what? You may wander in off the street, not buy a goddamn apricot, go to the bathroom, but we want your service in every step of the process to be an enjoyable one. That registered with me. I was also thinking, in addition to the customer, I was thinking, make it easy for the 16-year-old twerp with a hat and a, a propeller on top of it flipping around. Make it easily understood and applicable for them. So instead of having to walk around in circles, exhausting yourself, make it where you can go to one car like a beeline John Wick bullet. Bam, there's your food. Bam, there's your food. It's easier for the staff. Yep. I'm trying to make it easier for this kid I feel bad for because his nuts are probably the size of a couple of acon, acon, pecans, but I do like acon. I get locked up. They won't let me out. I love that jam. I oh loved it. I fucking oh loved God. it. It made me want to get locked up just so I could sing along with him. I get locked up. Whatever. Acon was good. God damn it. You're, you're absolutely right. So the lean work that starts with the customer and comes backwards is obviously for the customer, right? But the additional benefits that come from that is exactly what you were just saying about our little 16-year-old twerp kid. They are not now having to do additional steps, additional work within every single process, which could help their efficiencies in other processes. They have more energy for it. They're not so tired of having to walk back and forth 17 times to the same car, right? So the benefits of leaning out a process is exponential, especially if you're making sure you start with the customer. I want to then go to it. How do I know what the customer wants? When you think of the other key term in Lean Six Sigma, which is value. As a business owner, can I say what the customer wants? Should I? I need to know what the customer wants and tell me, or I use surveys or outreach or market research. 
value is identified by the customer, never by the business, never by the supplier. Because if a business or supplier starts to identify value for their customers, uh, more times than right, it's going to be wrong. You don't want to make assumptions at that level. You're having to consider a swath of personalities, ages, cultures. If you and I, if you and I were to go to Chick Fil A together, well, we have holding hands, holding hands, <laughs> holding hands, to make that experience valuable in your mind, to walk away going, "This was a good experience." What you identify as a good experience at Chick Fil A could be 100% different than what I define as valuable at Chick Fil A. So now, as a business, I have to be able to balance those two perspectives. Yours may be, I just want to get through the drive-thru very, very quickly. Mine may be, I don't care how long it takes as long as my food is hot and fresh. Yes, that's very good. You would want to have uh, something that was more universally applicable. I will say, though, that like with something that's very commonplace, like a fast food restaurant, how many people that work for Chick-fil-A or any any organization are also customers themselves of that same product? I think you can incorporate some logic. Like So, for example, absolutely, you could find someone that prefers to go in disgusting bathrooms. Because that's what they're used to, because they grew up in a broken home. So they may really want to see syringes on the grounds. But I don't think that that would be logical in the universal. So I think it could almost be argued emphatically that, yeah, we're going to have our restrooms be very clean. But then you have, sometimes you have these outside factors that force your hands. So look at COVID, right? How many hand sanitizer stations were in Chick-fil-A, you know, five years ago? Uh, none. But they actually did have those sanitizer wipes because of you going into the kid ballroom yes. area. Yep. They then had to see to like federal, you know, law or, or uh, CDC guidelines or, or what have you. I agree, man. I think you, you definitely don't want to make assumptions because that's, well, that could kill the business if you make the wrong Absolutely. assumptions. But at the Absolutely. same time, I think it's not rocket fucking science. Okay. You're trying to get something that people want. So the thing is half of their job's already done. They've created a product that people want, that people yes. are willing to go to a line that's an hour long wait because that's how much they want the product. They've already kind of created that market. They just have to sustain it and they have exactly. to remain bring this to what you do in a different way possibly. But one thing that I am not probably like you were saying, two customers come in and you got to make them both happy kind of thing. But for me, I wish that they had more variety with their menu. Like I wish that they incorporated new food items more frequently for Lent. They'll do the fish sandwich and they did finally get the spicy nuggets, but that took them a long time to change, you know, just from having the regular chicken nuggets to the spicy I wish that they would incorporate, and I mean, I know you can get two soups, you can get the chicken noodle. Oh, God, I'm getting fucking hungry, and it's Sunday, of course, the one day that you're not. And you know what? Dude, it is. This is the thing that I say, and people laugh at me, but I say, you know what? Like, thinking about efficiency, I was also thinking about economic opportunity. I said, if Chick-fil-A opened one Sunday a month, they put out a big banner on the highway that said, oh, we're now opening one Sunday a month. Yes, we love God, but we also love money. This is where the two shall meet. How fucking packed do you think Chick-fil-A would be that one Sunday a month? It would be devastating. Ridiculous. Yeah, but they'll It'd never do that. They'll never do that. It's funny that you mention it that way, though. It's literally called the McRib effect. Oh, right? yeah, from, yeah. From McDonald's. It's, They're bringing it back. Oh, here's this thing that we're only going to have for a limited amount of time. And if Chick-fil-A was to scale it to, like you just said, one Sunday a month, it'd be their highest sales day every month would yep. be that one yep. Sunday. Yep. Um, absolutely, it would be. Because it's um, a gimmick. It's gimmicky. It's, it's fun. It's a, it's a social media post. And I don't know if that's what they call it in business school or whatever. Like if I ran a business school class, I would call it how to run the, the McRib effect at your business. Like, I don't know. It'd be something like that. Like, but, but that's what it is, right? The McRib was one of the, God, all the way back to the early 90s. You can think of it. That's a great follow-up. It's not even really a counterpoint because it's, it's, it's a parallel thought. But mm-hmm. that is a good example, audience, of a guest on the show that took a bit of information and then made it even richer. Because, see, efficiency, it's not just, oh, let's create an efficient process. It's also about refining that process to, mm-hmm. keep, it, to keep it lean. I like to deal in extremes. So you can be too efficient. 
And I can give you an example of that since we talked, okay, we've been licking the dick of efficiency for 30, 45 minutes now. And now it's time to say, fuck you, efficiency, just to play the advocate of the devil and say, you know what? There was a guy I worked with and he was the red faced smoker. He was the one with the disgusting desk. He was Mm -hmm. the one that would leave for smoke breaks. And it's funny. Sometimes he's leaving for a smoke break. Sometimes he's leaving to give himself an insulin shot because he's a diabetic. And I'm thinking, how do you sometimes give yourself a shot while smoking cigarettes? Something about this just doesn't, this doesn't sound good. He would pride himself on being so quick, on being so efficient. And the second he'd get a file, he could not get it in the hands of an attorney fast enough. Well, it was efficient for him because all he's doing is taking work and sloughing it off onto somebody else. That's a very streamlined process. Okay. And the work may not even be in his possession for five minutes. If you're looking at it purely from efficiency as in like getting something from A to B in the quickest way, like parkour. Okay. Parkour is an efficient a method of travel, but there's a big risk with that. <laughs> instead, yeah. of, instead of walking up the stairs, which would have taken you five seconds, you hop from the pole to the top, but then you fall. And now you may have gotten there three seconds faster, but now you're going to be in the hospital for six months. There's a certain risk with being too efficient. You start losing that product quality and that's mm. a problem. Mm. So he, his product quality was shit. He would give you for Christmas a box of shit, but it had nice wrapping on it, but it's still a box of shit no matter how you dress it. And where that gets really scary, man, is forget about the red face smoker. Just forget about him. Uh, you've already forgotten about him. Where this gets really problematic is when you're applying it to a more company wide approach. Managers that are getting really good data, but they don't like it. They don't like that data. So they're going to, mm. mani- they're going to manipulate the data mm. to say something else to further their own agenda. You took the time and put up that work up front to give them good data that they could analyze, but you can't control how they analyze it and how they, how oh, they, and, and that's, and that's problematic because if Lean Six Sigma is the Death Star, it has a weakness. And that weakness is the data that they're analyzing. Is it reliable? As intuitive as like, remember back in the day where you'd have iTunes? It's just called Apple Music now. Okay, that's right. So it, it became like ExxonMobil thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The computer intuits, but it can only intuit to an extent. So you're getting this spreadsheet of data. And I remember talking with Brother Brooks on a podcast episode where he said, sometimes it's just laziness because you have these managers that they look at spreadsheets all day. And the spreadsheet is good in a kind of a big picture sense. But for a case by case or smaller picture sense, like a microcosm sense, you're not taking the time to really investigate the issue because you're, you can only get so much from dry data. So he said, our managers are fucking lazy because they don't want to sit there. They may spend an hour looking at a spreadsheet, but if they just sat down with you at your desk or I guess shared your screen with you in a virtual world for 15 minutes and watched you work a file, all of their questions could potentially be answered and you could realize things so quickly. Oh shit. That's why you've been fucking up on 97 files because you told the customer. I don't like your fucking last name. You've been telling every customer, I don't like your last name. It didn't show up in the data, but now you're getting these shitty customer service reviews and you don't know why. And now I just happen to see just by shadowing you for 15 minutes. That's the problem. So sometimes the data can be elusive, like the city. Bro, so, <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> Doug and old Willie, I hope you're listening. I'm about to open up a huge box here. Spoken about them on separate podcasts, pro- Hasn't been a white collar black belt, but on Whiskey Wednesdays and, and things like that. Doug and Old Willie, two coworkers of mine, work with me at Umbrella. Oh man, brothers, do we not understand that we analyze the data, we give the data, and leadership or management does not like that data oh. and wants us to spin it a different way or oh. go back into it and find something else, right? Or additional follow ups. They're all like clenching their jaws right now. They're pissed off. The butt cheeks are tight, tight. But tight what? The drum. But what more times than not? What Falsetto just described? Are we able to back up with that data? Is an actual deep dive of shadowing or observing the process with it? 
right? So you take the data. Here's why this process is failing. Here's why a defect in this process is failing or happening. Here are the observations we did with associates who've been here for three months to associates who've been here for three years. And it's the same failure point. Now you have your data backed up with observations. I dare a leader to fight that now. Again, and I keep talking about this, but we have two separate things going on here. And in a analytical or in a process improvement world, you have to have both. And so these companies, like your bomb shelter, that we're looking at one thing or hyper fixating on one piece, that's the problem. We've been doing this at Umbrella. When, when this department was formed about a year, year and a half ago, well, we had a really bad day yesterday. Why? There has to be that one thing. What? Ah, uh, everything's going terrible. It's a trend. We got to get emails out. We got to fix all the SOPs. No, hold on. Stop. Back it up. What our department's been able to do is be able to prove to them, look, one day or two days in a 30-day time frame isn't a trend. We had a bad day. Yes, we can find out what happened. Maybe we had a few more call-outs. Maybe there was a tech rollout that changed the process. Ah, it added an additional click and it took everybody a little bit longer to get through it if we're looking at tack time. What is tack time? So tack time is the time it takes you to complete a process to get the customer their end result. From the moment that they want it to the moment that they get it, trying to think about it for the insurance world. For us, when we get a service call, it's a task that comes on our monitors. We work on them live. But from the moment that task comes across our screen, there was somebody on the other end of that submitting that and now they're waiting for their result. So our tact time is from the moment that it lands on our screen to the moment we've clicked resolve and it's and they've received their product. Is that an acronym? So tact time is how frequently a quality piece must be produced to meet the customer's expectations. It's an actual formula. Uh, you take your available time and divide it over the customer demand. And that's okay. how you get tact time. At Umbrella, we actually call it SLA. That is an acronym, uh, which is service level agreement. With our customers whom we work with, we have identified hey, for these particular tasks, it's going to take us 30 minutes on average. Expect at most 30 minutes. So if that timer clips over to 31, they have reason to come up and riot. If we get it done sooner, great. But 30 minutes is the max time that the customer needs to plan for to understand that they're going to receive their product. And so when you're measuring that, and that's a, that's a key performance indicator or a data metric that our department measures, that's the big one right now at, um, at Umbrella is our SLA or tap time. And if we have one bad day, man, it leadership all the way down to us is up in arms and wondering why and why is this trend developing? And I know that it's a large organization umbrella. <laughs> you could say it's worldwide. Would you say that because every company is different? And of course, the way that they operate changes like with the seasons. But would you say that a lot of the people that are in those top positions that are making, let's say, a kingdom out of a null problem, something small that they're exacerbating, would you say that they did what you do now? And they work their way up. So they know the industry and they know what they really should be concerned about or not. Or were some of them just, they had manager experience working for a different company so that they hire a lot of outside or even outside that department? Or is it truly a department where a lot of people are in the manager role because they work themselves up like at a grocery store? I believe they are in their positions for some of those reasons, not all. The ones in particular that we and Doug and O'Willy will know. The one, the ones in particular that I'm talking about, definitely not. That's there's a, a very right there. They yeah, don't know the it's a very loose, it's a very loose understanding. Or the answer you can get is, well, I can read the SOP. I, I know how to do it. I'm like, cool. We haven't done it. We haven't worked in it and done it. That's a lot of what our department now has been focusing on is trying to make sure that when data on these improvements or if we've had a bad day in, in certain KPIs, being able to back that up with what actually happened. And I think that was just an additional step a year ago that we weren't really thinking about in, until about six, seven months ago. 
being able to back that up with with both sides. Having data and being able to speak to it and tell a story is one thing. It leaves it open to interpretation. Period. It doesn't matter how you report on that data if you're speaking from just a number standpoint. This week we had this data metric. Two weeks later it rose to this or it fell to this. It probably happened because of blah. Well, that's much different than saying, hey, over those two weeks it rose. We went out and did observations with A, B, and C, and this is what we got from them. This explains these two data points. Well, now if you report it out that way or talk about it that way, it's going to be a lot harder for leadership or management to be able to say, well, but what if it's, it's harder to do? See, and that, that ties very similarly to talking about these food franchises where making an assumption on what you think the customer wants compared to the difference between making like a loose assumption and educated guess where you're using the, the feedback, maybe spending years on the marketing and the research or the law of averages customer. You're now at least applying it with a more surgical mindset than just saying, well, I like a hot fry, so everybody must like a hot fry. Now you're putting all the company's resources into making sure that the fryers are the properly attuned, but now you're letting the milkshake machine go to shit. Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between making assumptions and actually having data that you can present. But I'll tell you, man, it's not beneath some people. And I mean, and we know this happens, but like in my former company, there was downright fraud happening where you would have people that were internal employees that were auditors and they would present information to higher management and they would say, these are the trends that I'm seeing. Money's being allocated for this and this is wrong. And they were basically told to shut up or ship out kind of thing. Where I really found that to be the case is if a manager has a baby, like a metaphorical workplace baby, where it's their baby, it's their idea, it's their new process, they probably shouldn't be involved in any part of it other than as like a distant advisor because they're going to be too yeah. emotionally involved in that project. And as soon yeah. as people start giving them negative feedback, like let's say you do your research or you look at the two processes, the lean and the six, and you say, this is the problem. Oh yeah, thank you. Thank you, Wham Bam, for sharing that. And then they do everything in their power to either manipulate it. They're letting their pride get in the way of business. Absolutely. I, I call it ego, right? Yeah. You let, you let ego get in the way. Jocko talks about it a lot. Ego and detachment. Those are two very difficult things to control. Ego is just a natural point of human behavior. So for instance, if me and you have a disagreement, I rise up to say, hey, well, what if you did it this way? I don't really agree with the way that you're saying to do it. You're going to automatically and just naturally rise up or if not surpass me in your own ego coming back up to it. Well, the reason I didn't do it is because of and and then no progress is happening. To be it's, able to yeah. actually have that improvement or to accept that feedback, now you've got to flip it and practice detachment, which is, okay, I own this process. I own this business. I had to do this a lot this last year when building this department. There were plenty of times in the moment, I'll be honest right now, to the audience, people would say, hey, William Bam, if you did this within your department or if you did this instead, and when they gave me that feedback and, and I'm like, mm, and I get super angry and like, well, bro, but if I gave it a day or two, or if I was able to practice in that moment, stepping back, looking at the battle plan, looking at my mission, right? My end game, what do I want to achieve? Take their suggestion and try and piece it together and does it hit that end goal and is it better? More times than not, I was able to go, man, that's, that's actually some pretty good advice. People don't offer you feedback more times than not. We, we do know about those sharks you've alluded to before. More times than not, people don't offer you advice or feedback in an effort to bring you down or to tear it apart. They're doing it because they also have an investment or a buy-in to what's going on. And if you consistently push back like that or show that angle or meet their ego with your own ego, Eventually, that feedback is going to stop from them. Oh, and it will also stop coming from others. And now all of a sudden, you're out on this island alone trying to make this idea or business initiative float and nobody's going to buy into it. 
And when you find yourself on that island, audience, make sure that you have a little friend named Wilson to accompany you through the Wilson. whole thing. Well, you know, so you saying that, I think that there's a lot there. I mean, that's a very good observation. That's an astute observation. Yeah, I called it either, it was either constructive feedback or deconstructive feedback. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to differentiate. They're not trying to tear you down, but maybe sometimes they are. Like maybe you just have a shitty manager who kind of like, so I remember my friend worked at Starbucks and he said, this will actually be one of two Starbucks references, but he, he was at a manager meeting and I mentioned it once before, but he was like, they're spending an hour and a half talking to him about why the customer matters. And he says, listen, I make 5,000 goddamn drinks a day. You really want me to spend like an hour thinking about how I'm going to make each drink? There's no way. And they said, look, dumbass. <laughs> they said, you may make 5,000 drinks a day. So, you know, you become desensitized to these drinks. But to that one customer who's purchasing one drink and they're paying $5 for the privilege, that drink is everything to them. Maybe they got shit on by their boss. Maybe they accidentally drank their own pee like falsetto once. Maybe they're just having a hell of a day and that drink is what they're looking forward to. And it sounds a little insane because it's a fucking frappy, but they're paying $5 oh. a day. And even this was even before massive inflation. This was going back about 13, 14 years. People were having a budget for Starbucks and their spouses were saying, Okay, you need to cut back on the Starbucks and into our, our retirement bottom line, you know. It's all about perspective. He's looking at it from a 5,000 drinks a day perspective. The customer only is concerned about that one drink. You think the customer gives a shit about the other random stranger's customer's drink and how that was made? No, they care about their drink. You literally just gave a story of value and waste. Value and waste. Because your employee, his value was, well, I my value is getting these drinks out as quickly as I can and as many of them as I can. Where the value of the customer is, this is my one drink. Right. And they'll wait. They'll wait for it to be made right as well. Exactly. And it's funny you so, talk about waste because, I mean, now, was me drinking my own pee, was that wasteful or was that actually very economical? According to Patches O'Houlihan, it's sterile. So you were good. <laughs> it absolutely is. Like the Native American, I use every part of my own buffalo. My own buffalo. Example, potty. It's like, let's say that you're really hungry, but you don't have time to make dinner and you don't have a hot pocket. Just cut out a little piece of your liver. It's fine. Think about it. If the food goes through the liver and you're eating the liver, you're actually getting two meals. Now. I don't know how big the liver is, but it's probably... I got nothing. Big enough. The other thing I was going to say about Starbucks was, this is actually a good example of efficiency getting in the way of your company's mission statement yes. or, 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 your, or your belief system for your company. And that is, so old Howard Schultz, and I remember reading this article, my aunt from London sent it to me a long time ago. It was a Time, it was a, it was a, a time article. And it was very thoughtful of her to send it because I was working at Starbucks at the time. But in no uncertain terms, this is the situation. Howard Schultz created this, well, he's... CEO and the majority shareholder, but there was this idea for Starbucks where they wanted it to be a neighborhood. It wasn't even supposed to be about coffee, really. It was more about community. It was, we want to have a place where people can come up there, bullshit, students can study, longtime friends can reacquaint, people can go to job interviews. You don't even have to get coffee. You're not going to be judged if you come in and don't get anything unless you smell like a used tampon and you know you keep assaulting the customers with a machete or something. The idea was for it to be a community environment and there wanted to be an intimacy between the barista and the consumer where they had these machines that would take a really long time to pull an espresso shot because it was supposed to be very flavorful. And the reason that they're called baristas is because you're supposed to have a special knowledge. So you talk about Lean Six Sigma. Bro, I became a fucking black apron wearer. And that sounds stupid. Like, well, now I don't have to wash it, right? Because it's black. So unless I spill like whipped cream on it, it took a lot of time. It took like a year to do these modules and to do these coffee tastings where you invite like the regional manager to come sit to figure out what food pairing you're going to do. I mean, it was a whole fucking thing and it was a lot of money for the company to spend on this expenditure for that. But so I'm there and he said in his, in his article that originally it was supposed to be this intimate situation where, you know, you would be making the person's coffee and the machines were kind of small so you could see the customer. And the whole purpose was that interaction that you have with them 
where you talk about the coffee, you talk about your life. They would feel like they had a friend in you. And that was what it was supposed to be about. That was the Starbucks way. But then what happens? Greed, baby. Instead of servicing 50 customers in an hour, let's make it 500. So they order these very expensive espresso machines that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. They're twice the size and width and height of the original machines. And they shoot out a digitalized shot that's like pre-measured. That's great for efficiency, but now you can't see the customer because the machines are too big. They're too loud. You can't talk to the customer, but you're cranking out so many more widgets in a span of time. So he admitted that he traded in the company's message and their philosophy and the whole heart of the company for money due to greed and efficiency. Absolutely. So sometimes efficiency can essentially rape your business model as far as what you actually sought out to do in the interest of more. It absolutely did. And that is a great example there of losing what is value to the customer in the process. Is Starbucks still successful? Absolutely. Can you have something like that happen in your business or your company and still be successful? Mine is one of those companies. Uh, you, you can lose heart of what the end game is. Um, and by mine, I mean my overarching company, our, our department within it. We, we do really hard to continue to service the customers for what they need and what they value. Um, there's always that push of how do we do it faster? How do we get more? You nailed it on the head. Greed will always, always wiggle its way in from a homegrown business out of a garage to worldwide domination. And so, umbrella. <laughs> you the the answer is in the is in our moniker for your company. It's great. It is. <laughs> no, but that's good, Nate. Because I, I don't know if we mentioned this before in a prior. Because, you know, it's getting to the point, man, where we cross so many streams. We talk on so yeah. many shows. I don't yeah, know. We, we, we take down so many ghosts. I don't know. I don't know when I said it. Don't cross why. the streams, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've laughed that hard since I was seven years old and my doctor told me that I had a penis. Um, <laughs> okay. So, wait. Why did it take so long for me to learn that I had the, the male plumbing? That's weird. Let's, let's move on. I don't want to know. <laughs> okay. So, I'm not editing that out. God damn it. I'm standing by. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like a manager. Who, that's, that's my the baby. New cold open. That's my baby. That's the new cold open. I thought they were talking about efficiency. I didn't think they were talking about John Wick and Dick, but we found a way. We found a way. Life finds a way, John. At my company, we would go to the main browser, the main company browser, which, by the way, was never updated, and it was never that sexy. It was always kind of Mm. lame. It was vanilla, not even French fucking vanilla. If I wanted to find my job in the company browser, I would have to drill in like four times. And what that did was it put a visual to the fact that the company was large and it was complicated. And you lose sight of that. When you're not unwinding the daily grinds. If your day, like you were saying at the habitual fender and probably at Umbrella, I mean, it's a demanding organization. You wake up, you go to work, and then you clock out, you slide down a Baronosaurus tail, and then you run home. You can get so caught up in just the methods and motivations of your department that you lose sight of maybe what the whole is trying to accomplish, right? Oh, yeah. And that's very easy to do. But to be well-rounded and to be well-balanced, sometimes you think, and, and that's why I think it's good to interact with people in other aspects of the business. Do you guys ever do like internal job fairs? Yes. They're more on a virtual basis now. Sure, yes. sure, sure. Because that's good though, because it, what that, it forces people like the firemen and the cops to actually play softball together and actually, yeah. you know, interact and say, hey, we're kind of doing the same thing. We're providing a public service. We don't have to hate each other. There's actually an exercise people can do within their companies or a refocus. People are ever interested in doing that. It's just a few short questions and you can scope it to whatever you want. But it starts with, what is our purpose? You start with that question. You have to start with a scope. So and what I mean by scope is, what is Umbrella's purpose? I can be that large. I can be that wide, wide of a scope. Or I can bring it all the way in, focus that scope and say, okay, for this particular process, what is our purpose? 
And so you, you can really use this exercise um, as large or as, or as small as you need. But it starts with what is our purpose? The very next question, who are our customers? And then it's very customer-centric after that. What do our customers want? Do we deliver what they want? If we don't deliver what they want, what is the cost? And that can obviously be monetary, but you're looking for anything else, right? Trust, things like that. And then the very last question is, what can we do? How can we ensure we get our customers what they want? The most important part to me, obviously, those last five questions are all customer-centric, but that first one, what is our purpose? You've identified this before in a white-collar black belt. Suicide mission statement? Yeah. It's so pivotal, that overarching war, the overarching war mission, if you want to call it that. But within individual branches of a larger organization, everybody has their own little mission. But they all have to meet at some point to get to that to that large one. So back to your original point of other departments, small departments within a large organization can forget what the overall goal is. Sometimes that exercise is something that can help people refocus or maybe it drops a stress or an issue that you were thinking of. You're like, well, but this department isn't really doing. Okay, one team, one dream, baby. Like their goal is to do the same thing, which is get widgets to the customer. Hey, guess what? So is ours. So how can we work together to do that? Yeah. There's a lot of, you got me going, you got me fired up. Well, there's a lot of overlap because on the one hand, I would say that 95% of the people that work at your fine organization are also customers of your fine organization. Oh yeah. They have hundred percent or they know someone that's a customer or they in love, they're in love with someone's customer or they recently murdered someone who was a customer. The point is that, you know, you're, you're doing it for yourselves in a more distant way. But when I was working insurance, I didn't even have that insurance company as my insurance carrier. So when customers, I've heard would, that a lot, when, when, when customers would ask me, like, you're probably getting like, they're probably just giving you a, a break because you work there. I say, listen here, motherfucker, you son of a bitch cocksucker. I looked into that. When I started working in this company, I called the agent. I said, what would my insurance be with this 15% discount? It would still be more than what it would be with a rival carrier. So I said, fuck that. And I never had it. I wasn't even getting high on my own supply from an insurance perspective. And so to me, the fact that you are all customers of the product that you're distributing you could say that you actually have an investment and it working properly, right? In a more distant way, but it's still applicable. Yes. Well, I, I draw that to say that for these same people, you know, that you were just talking about where you work for an organization, but at the end of the day, if everyone can remember that while you're going to have disagreements and you're going to have the pride, you still are going to have situations where you're, you have to remember that you're all working for the same goal. Yes. Not to get too combative because like Sun Tzu would say, if you really want to be efficient and letting the enemy be defeated, just let them destroy themselves internally. You don't have you don't have to do much. You spread you spread a little dis- uh, dissent. You have a few spies, and then you just let them crumble. That's the whole thing from uh you know Shakespeare's Othello, you know where he suffered from hubris and he suffered from his rage. All Iago had to do was just fuck with them a little bit, and then he brought his own destruction. He didn't have to lift a finger really. That's important to remember. And you know one thing you were saying earlier, it I remember a conversation I had with Brother Brooks because we probably talk about work more than we should because I haven't worked there in a long time. But it's just man, it rises it rises like a phoenix in my in my blood. Because he reads a lot. He's very educated. I have a lot of respect for his intellect. And we were talking about how, okay, so I don't know what it's like when you do your reviews, like your quality reviews for yourself, for whether you're going to get a promotion or, by the way, congrats. Congrats on any and all promotions. <laughs> I don't think that you were like, I don't think it was nepotism. I don't think you were some sister's brother's cousin that got the job. You did it through merit. Remember, we talked about the fact that like, if you were, if you're going to get, it's all about checks and balances. So you're talking about checks and balances with like lean six and everything. But when you're getting your review for your performance, if they really want to do it properly, like checks and balances like we have in our constitution, it should be a triangle. 
input should be coming from three sources. The first source is yourself, because you know your work product better than anybody. The second is your overseer, who's telling you to get that sugar cane and work harder. The third is from the fucking customer. To do it right, you should have a three-pronged approach. At my company, it was all fucked up. Instead of it being a three-pronged approach, what they would do is it would be top-down, it would be dictatorship, where your manager said, yeah, 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 I, I read what you said about yourself, that's all well and good, and I saw there was a few customer service surveys over here, uh-huh, but this is what you get. And they took the reins on completely dictating what your performance is. It was not a checks and balance system. It was a unilateral system. Yeah, that's I agree with you. I actually think there should be a fourth prong. I Just think what your spouse has to say. How happy, how happy you are when you <laughs> no, come the home. real boss. Uh, no, I think you should also have feedback from your peer group, right? Oh, or, sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, like absolutely. So, well, Umbrella does do this. We're, we're actually prepping for review time right now, so I'm required to write my own review. I write my own. What what did I think? How, what do I think I did this year and, and all of that? Um, my supervisor will obviously have to, and, and then anybody who who reported to me, like if I had direct reports, they would write like how did I interact with them and and, and things like that. But you also send out, hey, I would like some feedback. And, and it comes back anonymously. I'd never know. I know who I sent them to, but you send them to enough people that you don't know who, who wrote them back. But you send out feedback from peer group. And you can literally send them to anybody in the company. So I can do it from you know the lowest person on the totem pole all the way to the top if I wanted. It doesn't make sense to do that. You want to do it with people that you've worked with on a regular basis. Um, because that outside perspective is actually taken into account, uh, which is really nice. Obviously, people can take advantage of that and send reviews to people that they're super close with and, and, and maybe one-sided. I, well, I told Doug and old Willie, they're going to think this whole episode is about them. It's not. Uh, but it just so happens I've worked with them the most. But I told them, I was like, hey, these few people this past year who've kind of given us some really good pushback or you know really challenged us in different ways. Um, those are the political correct terms that I'll use right now. Uh, <laughs> the assholes who didn't like what we did. Those actually sent, assholes. I actually sent them to, to give me some feedback. You know, not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody's going to be that brave to seek that out. When it comes to my review and my performance, as much as I want to improve myself, because that's only going to better everything around me and getting that potential, because I haven't got it back yet, that potential negative feedback that I hope I can turn into constructive and rebuilding is pivotal. So I challenge people when you do that, even if your review process doesn't require you to, maybe when you're writing your review um, for yourself, because every company makes you do a self-review. I challenge you, go get that peer-to-peer feedback. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up. It's as obvious as it is beneficial because, but again, it's it's kind of like the thing where, and I'm, I'm, I apologize because I became so jaded and disillusioned by my organization that I started almost putting blinders on where I thought, well, this is just how it is in the real world. Like brother Clint, he was mindful of the fact that his advice was sound, but it was also a slightly narrow because he'd only worked for this one organization for so many years. I am glad that you now have been able to work. What you're able to do is you're now talking about the differences between two different organizations. Oh, yeah. That's the definition of experience. It's almost like you kind of have to have like, you have to be married like six times to really be an expert on marriage, right? Wait, that's one that doesn't work out. But with jobs, (laughs) yes, I think it does because you're able to see the night and day differences. With the peer feedback, I was so jaded because, for example, we did the same thing. It was a thing like, it was like the kudos card program where if you were really impressed with somebody, they didn't want you to air dirty laundry. Like, don't send them a card and tell them to go fuck themselves. But you'd write up a kudos card, you'd send it to that recipient, and then their manager would get a copy of it. Well, man, just to give you an idea of the kind of shit that we're talking about here, it was window dressing at best. It was just something that somebody started the company so that they could get promoted and probably move to a different department. But then the way that it was utilized was they would cherry pick the ones they wanted if they wanted to promote somebody. 
And if somebody that they didn't want to promote got a shit ton of good praise, they would just chalk it up to, well, these are just your friends, you know, that kind of shit. So it was really bad. Just two concrete examples. So there was a guy, Drew Well, that I mentioned, and he's probably like your Doug, where I took him under my wing and I spent a lot of time with him. I mean, I spent so much time with him. I would just carve out an hour out of my day to just help him for like months at a time. And there would be days where he didn't need any help or anything. But I really wanted to explain things in a very well-delivered, well-articulated manner. I was getting these kudo card acknowledgements from him that would be like 10 sentences long. Falsetto has saved my life. He took a bullet for me. When my arm was nicked by a propeller blade, he gave me plasma. He has shown me the ropes and everything in between of the stage of this entire organization. I would be nothing without him. He is basically my workplace father, uncle, big brother. I love Falsetto. I'm telling my boss for my uh, year in review, I said, well, let's let this speak for itself. I've completely changed this man's life in a workplace situation. So that's totally observable. It's measurable. They're always asking about impact. Well, I made a real impact in this one employee's existence and made his work product better. You know what she said after I told her how proud of that I was and that's why I come to work every day to help this man and others like him? She said, oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Why don't you do go do the same thing with Steve now? Those are her words. Go, go do that same thing with Steve now. And I'm thinking, you fucking twat. So in the end, that's as proud of that as I was and I was still proud about it. The amount of belittling and minimizing of that accomplishment, and of course it didn't give me any promotion or any accolades that I was thinking that it would be worthy of, just the amount of time I was spending on that project to get nothing really out of it in the end other than a friend is just, that was very disheartening. But, you know, other examples, so you talk about, so you get like feedback and, and then, okay, so from the, the perspective of getting feedback from customers, well, we would have customer surveys, but man, you could get 25 good ones and all they would shine the spotlight on is the shitty one. I shit you not caught up in the fact that customers are people that are paying money to have our insurance product. Yeah. But I had an external customer in the sense that it was a B carrier who's like an adverse carrier that we are working with to try to get our money back. And it can be adversarial, but usually it's just two people that don't really want to be doing what they're doing that are doing it so they can settle it, get it negotiated and be done and move on. I spent a year going back and forth with this B carrier and our customer, or our, so actually the bomb shelters customer was so difficult. I formed such a bond with this B carrier that she sent an email directly to my manager that went on and on singing my praises about how, okay, Falsetto was dutiful. He followed up on every email. He was constantly giving me updates. And he worked with me to achieve this extremely adversarial situation with this customer to get her everything that she needed. And he was a pleasure to work with. That's like your sworn enemy writing a letter to your king or your battle staff sergeant that says, I love this man. And when this war is over, we're going to be, we're going to be best friends. That should give management pause. That's probably the first time in history of my company that that you're getting an email from a, a underling from the enemy saying how great you are. You know what she did with that? She mischaracterized the message and it was just lost in the shuffle. And I'm just thinking, you know what? Like, And that's about probably six months before I said, fuck this. Yeah. I'm truly glad for you that you're having experiences that you know are reasonable and that they're making you feel valued. As long as you feel like you can do this data and you can put in this legwork and you can present it to people. And even if they don't agree with you or even if they don't necessarily implement it, they're at least taking what you're saying seriously, right? You feel that way. Yeah. And and I would say, like, obviously, I'm spending a lot of the positive here, right? Like things that have, have gotten me or the department that I was running into a great place. My group that worked with me don't know. There was not always this great and wonderful, oh, man, look at the future of our department and what we're going to be able to do. There, That was not clear sometimes. There were times where we, we would get out of a meeting or or a week of of doing some sort of a data deep dive. And we felt like we were absolutely fucking steamrolled and came out as the losers. That perseverance afterwards, okay, we screwed the pooch on this one. We 
didn't deliver it the right way, or we didn't, we missed this article of data that should have been factored in. You know, how do we improve that? And I don't say improve as in, well, let's make it better. Let's make it efficient. That's not what I mean. You literally, as you're building a department like this, you have to be like, crap, that's just something we didn't think about or didn't have the experience to do it. I'll also backtrack that with this. No one on my team was data analytics trained, period. None of us came to that department, even myself came to that department and started to build that department with any of that background or history. We all had unique talents or skills that allowed us to kind of piece that all together or had the ability to go find out how to do it or use relationships to help us gain that knowledge. None of us were analytics trained. And so that was some of the struggle too, is then we've got to build that trust and show that because that's exactly what leadership's looking for. Well, they want the perfect data analyst. Well, none of us were trained that way, but yet we are in these positions for other reasons. There was definitely times where we were like, man, is, are we coming in Monday and even having jobs? Um, so it keeps things exciting. <laughs> it, it does. It really does. It's at a point now where, yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, this department has a future. Actually quite proud of Doug. Shout out to him because he's got the reins of it now. I'm excited to see what he'll, he'll turn it into going forward. So we can have Doug on for a we kind of a, a hybrid episode where we talk about cancer and we talk about on. efficiency. I need them on. And it makes Mind sense because cancer is extremely efficient. So, Oh, Will, oh Willie, because I know you're listening to this one because you don't freaking miss one. Oh, Willie, help me. Help me get Doug on. We want Doug on. Oh, Willie. Oh, oh, oh Willie, give us feedback, please. Please, oh, leave, I'll get, I'll get. please leave comments. Please tell Wham Bam what's, what's the dealio because we would love to know what this sounds like through your ear canals. Yeah, I think that would be fun to bring on new voices just for guest episodes and, you know, just to kind of give their little phraseology and say it their way. Now, to bring things around, we talked about Japs recently on Kamikazes and Whiskey Wednesdays. Now, the word Kamikaze, if you recall, means divine wind. Yeah. The word Kaizen means, imp Ooh. means improvement. Yeah. And or so this change whole for the better. Yes. And so this whole Lean Six thing was first implemented in Japan. And so you think about Japan being efficient. Well, we talk about Pearl Harbor being an efficient tactical strike. We talk about their efficiency and their, especially auto manufacturing, for example. Mm -hmm. Toyota. But, but so we got Kaizen and we got Divine Wind. These are good words. And you know what I like about these words is they're very efficient. Kaizen, that's two syllables and it means a lot. And then Kamikaze. Okay, that's four, but that's just a cool fucking word. I, for purpose of the audience, the most important thing is we're saying all these things and this has been a great episode. The irony though is that I had about, 300 hours worth of material and we've barely scratched the surface and we've already part one so long i'm thinking that this was actually an inefficient episode but we're going <laughs> to talk about we're going to have future yeah. we're going to have to make this maybe like a, a multi-pronged attack i think so because I there's so. a lot there's a lot here man and it's fun and you're lighting up like a goddamn i love this stuff um meadow sweet you're lighting up like a meadow sweet late in christmas tree supernatural style when they find those pagan fucking gods this is great stuff and it's so applicable but so for the audience. These are the takeaways, I think. One, don't lose sight of the company's picture. Don't get so wrapped up in your own daily grind. And that's the whole point here is to unwind the daily grind. Right. But it's for you to do, it's drive a different way to work. That's a simple example. But do things differently. Reach out to different people at work. Get different perspectives. Do anything to force yourself from getting into a rut. Here's the other thing, man. You should be passionate about your work, but don't give it too much. Don't give it too much of yourself emotionally or mentally because they're, I, I really, I truly don't think they're paying you for you to just completely, because it's not your baby. You're a part of a system. You're not the system. And so to me, it's like you would probably be best 
knowing that you may have the greatest idea that you present. And just because that idea is not accepted or implemented for strategy or for efficiency purposes at that moment, maybe it's just the wrong time. Maybe you, you wait on it, you sit on it a little bit, maybe you get a different manager in there, or maybe six months passes, or maybe these deadlines are met. Maybe you reintroduce it again with fresh eyes, and maybe it gets implemented. Some people got so bent out of shape because of that, like you were saying, the ego. They didn't like the ego stroke, the way they were being stroked at that handy they were getting from that Malaysian wonder that would step on their lower back and get out every crank and wank. But some people get so bent out of shape by that, that they don't want to reintroduce the idea. They're just like, oh, fuck it. You know, they don't want to hear what I have to say. Yeah. Maybe they just don't want to hear what you have to say right now. Maybe it's Christmas time. Maybe they're really fucking busy. Just know that if you believe it's a good idea, like these podcasts that we're doing, right? Yeah. We believe in the content, so we keep going. Now, my boy Whamcam likes to say, keep moving forward. Wham Bam's favorite button on the keyboard is the forward button, the front yes. arrow. <laughs> Another thing I was thinking about, so you know that movie that we watched, Black Hat, that we loved? Right? Oh, yes. Some people think they get all stupefied or they get construct by the idea of, well, this is a new technology or this is a new data mapping system and they swear by it. Mm. Sometimes companies that have invested a lot of money in a, in a program will swear by the program to the point where they don't even listen to feedback. So yes. we, we had an estimated software that they spent a lot of money on. And this was coming from like the top dog cat adjusters who handled millions upon millions of dollars worth of company money. And they were telling management, okay, this program sucks. This program is not as good as the program we had before. Why can't we just tweak the system that we had before? And management didn't want to hear it. That's what I call putting too much emphasis in things that look too nice and shiny. So for example, in Black Hat, Chris Hemsworth towards the end arms himself with phone books that are taped around his torso, serving as a flak jacket. And he gets fucking screwdrivers and rubber bands, which cost him probably like three yen or whatever the fucking currency is in Malaysia. Or he had someone file down the ends of the screwdrivers and he put them in the rubber bands on the inside of his wrist to have little concealed little weapons. And he killed guys with machine guns with his shit and he had body armor. So it cost him nothing, just a little bit of time and a little ingenuity. And he was able to bring down people that had superior technology. So to me, it's just, you don't have to swear by something just because it costs a lot of money or because you went through a lot of trouble to get it. You have to look at how valuable is it? Is it really performing the function that it's intended to? That's a big takeaway, I think, is don't get too wrapped up in things that are superficial. For you, you know, in your department, I imagine they should be coming to you a lot and saying, because one, they trust you or they should trust you. And two, they know that you believe in what they're doing. So they should be coming to you a lot and saying, wham, bam. All right, how's this shit working? Is this appropriate or is this not appropriate? They should be eliciting your feedback a lot, soliciting your feedback a lot, I think. I think we're still definitely working on that trust for total department. There are folks who will come in there be like, hey, I'm kind of on the fence this way or the other about, you know, this direction that we need to go for this process or this idea. What do y'all think? And those times are really nice. Those are the times that I take a step back and just breathe it in. Those are the times that energize me because that is the proof that what we're doing is working. Right. When people seek out your feedback or your input, right? It wasn't a meeting scheduled for me that day. They came in, knocked on the door, and was like, Hey, do you got five minutes? I got to run something by you. That's awesome. They don't report to me. They don't report in my organization. They're just a department that we're helping support, but they'll come by and ask for that. And, and that breathes life. All the turmoil, all the struggles, all the ego battles help you to know what you're doing right and to keep moving forward. Look at that. I knew it. Plug. It's a plug. You knew it was coming. Well, audience, I'll tell you that the last Audible Ally episode is a somber episode, but it's very well-researched and it's very well-articulated by none other than Wham Bam Cam. 
And from that episode, it got me thinking about, okay, how do you keep your perspective positive? And I can tell you that there have been no shortage of times when I was working on this podcast and I was thinking, why am I doing this? Like you, the first question you said that came down from an organizational standpoint was, why are we doing this? Why are we doing what we're doing? So I started getting frustrated thinking that, you know, it wasn't making ripples and whatnot. It's funny the phrases that people latch onto. So when I got to the episode about knowing your own value and I talk about the concept of like ownership and co-ownership, not only did Wham Bam speak to how he found that to be particularly relevant and important to his lifestyle, but C. Drew ended up telling me, and now he oversees large swaths of people, like he has anywhere from 40 to 80 direct reports on these uh, at these refineries, maybe more than that. I don't even know. I just pulled those numbers out of my butt talks. He said that resonated with him so much, the ownership versus co-ownership, that he actually put in a write-up to higher up management. And when they would inherit a new site, what was happening was management would say, this site is in shambles. You need to account for this and you need to show ownership. It's like, whoa, 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 bro. Okay. I've been affiliated with this project for 13 days. It had 50 years to get in a state of disrepair. I'm not taking ownership for this. I'm not taking the blame for this. I'll take some of it because that's my title and that's my responsibility. I didn't have a hand in this becoming what this mess that it is. He put it in a more, I guess, pleasing to the ears approach, but he actually utilized that concept of setting your own boundaries on ownership. I wish he told me sooner, but when he told me that, I was like, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So audience, and I'm sure Wham Bam, you know, would tell you something similar, which is you can laser focus anything you want. You can focus on things that make you feel good. You can focus on things that make you feel bad. You choose what you want to focus on, really. I mean, now things are going to happen. I mean, shit's just going to happen and you have to adapt to it. But if you're choosing intentionally to focus on things that make you feel good, I think it would be harder to feel bad. Completely agree. Completely agree. Wham Bam, did you have any last minute jokes or anything that you saw in the last day that made you cry or pee your pants because of a clown? An unusual appearance in your life? Something like that? I keep, I keep getting random text messages from some dude named Falsetto that keeps telling me to watch out for the clown under my bed. But every time I look, it's actually like an iguana, which is really weird. That's I don't know weird. what that means. That iguana wasn't supposed to get there until Hanukkah. Ah, oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So it's like two weeks early. <laughs> shit. Oh, well. <laughs> Fucking Amazon. You know, you try to smuggle pandas through it and they give you shit and they replace it with an iguana. Yeah, right. Nothing really here on this side. We did. I'm looking at our outline. And I'm like, yeah, we, we went off a little bit here um but and by a little bit i mean whew. i don't care i think this is one of the best uh, interview sessions i've had because i don't know that there's anything better in a dialogue capacity where you're talking about something it not only sounds very appealing and logical to me but it triggers something in me that makes me want to respond to it and then we just go back and forth with this game of um wall ball we just keep kind of outdoing each other but not in an ego way it's more in like a a search for the core of the intellectual matter. So I find that to be very satisfying. Absolutely. Satisfying. Like when John Wick sticks a pencil in someone's orifice that it shouldn't go or satisfying when you tell your manager that you have a colleague whose life you've irrevocably changed for the better. And then they tell you to go clean the bathroom because bathrooms matter because we need to have clean bathrooms because that's where customers do not give us money unless there's a condom machine in the bathroom. He once killed a guy with only a pencil. A fucking pencil. It's just funny because it's such like a futuristic movie Dude. where they're dealing with like gold coins and stuff, Dude. but then he uses like an actual pencil and not a mechanical it's pencil. It's such, it's such, it's such a legitimate system. Like I like that system a lot. Like you do the job, here's, here's a gold coin. What do I use a gold coin for? Whatever you want. That's right. Yeah. And, you, and, if, and if, if the gold coins don't fit into the slot for the vending machine, you can melt it down, make bullets out of it. Like Constantine. Make bullets out of it. Thanks, man. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Uh, thank you audience for listening to two grown men make fun of everything that's not them because that's how we do 
Oh, we also make fun of ourselves. Listen to Audible Ally. The way I was, this is the way I was describing it. I, I shit you not. This is the way I described it to Red Devil the other day and the difference between our two podcast broadcasts. I said, Chemohawk Sessions is like you approach a stranger on the street and you grab him by the throat and you hit him in the face, metaphorically, and you say, do this, listen to this, these people are fucking retarded, that shit needs to stop, and you fucking need to smell nice and come correct. And then that person leaves, and then Wham Bam Cam greets them with a hug and says, and says, listen, okay, a lot of that was true, and that was the hard love, but I'm going to give you the soft glove, and I'm going to tell you right now that it's going to be okay. Your company that you hate, there is some good in that company. And so I feel like I'm kind of like the I'm the stick parent and you're the carrot parent. So maybe we're doing, we can... we're, we're doing Superman and Batman interview styles. I think your I think your tone is more appropriate for a business meeting, and mine has no place in the building. <laughs> but see, actually, I think that works for a particular. I've told you from the beginning that I think our two podcasts are yes, as they are on different lanes, but how well they work together, and I think our delivery styles and, and the way we we discuss complement each other as well. I think that's why it works. At the end of the day, you know, I think that. We both feel a sense of accomplishment when somebody listens and then says, I think probably the, the sexiest question that could be asked would be, yeah, why am I still here? Or why are we doing it that way? Mm -hmm. And it forces them to think. Absolutely. My non-bio, no homo bro, wham bam, cousin fucking Cam. He is from a small town. And I, your soothing voice for sore ears, falsetto prophet, thank you. You altruistic, impressionistic F-Stars audience. Just because you are impressionistic does not mean you will fall for just any fucking gimmick. You are sharp. You are slick. I appreciate you listening to our intellectuals' confessionals. We may not always be 100% correct, but we come correct with a firm motivation to educate, inform, and entertain. And at the cost of sounding insane, we'll take the time to explain, but from swear fucking words, we will not refrain. You complete me, audience, which is a godfather fucking feat in and of itself, for you I never see. Which does not detract from or dilute what you mean to me. Unwind with us that perturbing daily grinds until it dilutes to something less disturbing. Remain a patient, audience patient, for your next panacea dose, gifted by your healing fucking host via chapter 50, also known as a semi-centennial. 50 episodes, bro. 50 Damn. fucking 50. episodes. Damn. I'm going to be horse. I'm not going to have an Emmy for 50, I don't think. I think this is just, I think this is wishful fucking thinking. White collar, black belts. We might have to do a follow-up because you're really going to like this one. I mean, this one okay. is going to excite the gonads <laughs> that rest securely under your ball sacks. Actually, is it one ball sack or is there this is two balls, but one ball sack? Is that how it works? I don't know. Medic. All I know about human anatomy was my friend's pickup line in college. He would oh, walk no. up. He would walk up to women and say, "Hey, hey, hey, do you want to study together?" Um, well, what would we study? Like, we're not even in the same class. Oh, well, let's go back to my place and study human anatomy. Oh, my in, Lord. in Braille. Wow. White collar black belts, politically direct, filthy mouth, pure motive. Falsetto and Wham Bam Cam out. <laughs>